Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. How did the British prepare for nuclear war during the Cold War? What was the worst-case scenario if thermonuclear weapons were to be used? I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast, and in this episode from the History Hit Archives, Dan Snow talks to Julie McDowell about surviving a nuclear attack and how Britain might have remade itself in the aftermath of Armageddon. These are all strangely pertinent questions for the world we find ourselves in today. Enjoy. Julie, thanks so much for coming on History Hit. Thank you for inviting me. I mean, you are you are the hottest historian in town at the moment, but I'm really fascinated by your research on what Britain was going to do in the event of nuclear Armageddon. And it's one of those things that, for the planners, it's such an overwhelming proposition. And yet, I suppose they had to make, even if they thought all contingencies would be wiped out, they had to make a plan, I guess. That's true, yes. In my, in my work, I often paraphrase Taylor Swift and say, planners going to plan. <laughs> That's their job. So in, in the Home Office, which did the most of the planning, obviously they were told we need to drop plans for, for example, the NHS and um, how to evacuate cities, for example. And even if they knew it was futile, the fact is the bosses said, we need this done. So it had to be done. And I just imagine, I have some sympathy for civil servants in the Cold yeah. War. I imagine them writing this and secretly thinking, oh, for goodness sake, this is nonsense. But they had to do it because the boss said, get it done. And did they draw heavily on the experience of the Blitz or, or, or was it looking at the experience of the Japanese, the German cities that suffered so awfully during the Second World War? How were they, what were they, what were they using? Um, I think the Cold War can be split in two. The early part of the Cold War, which was the atomic age, of course, they did lean heavily on plans from the Blitz and quite naively they thought we could just transplant everything from the Blitz, which worked well, of course, civil defence, ARP, etc., uh, the rescue squads that all worked with conventional bombing. And there was a naive hope that this will work with atomic bombing. And there is a kernel of truth in that. An atomic bomb is, in theory, survivable if it's not you know, blanketed across the whole country. But once the thermonuclear age began and we had the hydrogen bomb, that made all these plans utterly redundant, utterly useless, because there is no defence against the hydrogen bomb. Uh, that can turn a city into dust, so a, a rescue squad is futile when your city is radioactive dust. I don't know how you get through the day, with, given your research material. It must be terrifying. But so, so yeah, talk me through different atomic bombs. So at Hiroshima, it's something like a, a mile radius was sort of destroyed, but there was life in the part, parts of the city, and it was yes, yes. Yeah. And there were survivors, of course. People managed to um, duck into shelters and survive. 
And of course, the main thing was Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They survived because they had the rest of the country and of course America in particular to come in and rescue and rebuild. But if we had an all out atomic war now, there's no one to rescue you because if it's an all out war, that's like Dresden begging for help during the war from say Hamburg. You're both equally destroyed. There's no help coming. So that's why the plans became futile in the nuclear in the thermonuclear age, because there's no one to help you. If it's an all-out war, Britain in particular, because we're so compact and heavily populated with a target at the end of every street practically, uh, we could easily have been wiped out in the thermonuclear age by, say, 12 to 15 thermonuclear bombs. And of course, if you manage to dodge the blast, the fallout will get you. And if you manage to dodge the blast and the fallout, then you've got the collapse of society to contend with, the lack of food, the nuclear winter, the starvation, crop failure, anarchy. So there's no way to, if you survive one obstacle, thermonuclear war throws up another and then another until everyone's gone. That's my thinking. Yeah, you want to be killed in the first wave. Yes, you do. You? you want to be gone. You want to be evaporated instantly. Well, I live very close to Portsmouth Naval Base, so I'm fine. <laughs> me, and, me and the kids are out. You're gone instantly. You're fine. So talk me through, in terms of history, when, when does the atomic age give way to the thermonuclear Can you tell me a little bit? You've, you've talked about the level of destruction, but how, how much larger is the yield of those, of those warheads? Well, with a thermonuclear bomb, obviously the yield can be... Later in the Cold War, the yield could be whatever you wanted. You could actually dial on, on the bombs what you wanted. So you could, um, you know, the president could get out his little cards, which he always carries in his pocket, known as the biscuit, that's the nickname for it. And he could choose what he wanted. There are what's called menus in the briefcase that he always carries around with him. So he could choose a menu for what he wanted, choose which targets, which yield is going to be on each bomb. So really you can mix and match your nuclear bombs for ultimate destruction. But really, if a hydrogen bomb falls on the city, there's, there's no hope for you at all. But so it's completely different from the atomic age. Atomic age, yes, you could survive. And yes, some of our Second World War plans could have worked. But um, by the time the nuclear age turns to the thermonuclear, there's no point planning. All you can do is plan to avoid it, not plan to survive it. And what, and what date is that? Um, hydrogen bomb came around in the, the 60s. So we had a period where, of course, in the late 40s, it was just America who had the atomic bomb. Then, of course, the Russians very quickly caught up. And then the rest of us, little Britain and little France, tried to tag along. But then when the hydrogen bomb made itself clear in the 60s, and there was a report written by the British government called the Straff Report, which didn't, it wasn't um, full of all the silly British, you know, um, what's the word, um, euphemisms trying to, you know, underplay what it was. The Straff Report was famous for being very blunt and telling the government, this is what the hydrogen bomb will do. And that's when things changed. That's when we knew that all our nice nostalgia of the Blitz was useless now because we were in a totally different world. OK, so let's talk about some of the plans for the atomic age, because you've looked into those. What, what, are, what are some of the... And what, what strikes you about those plans now? Actually, was it a serious attempt or does it just the whole thing just strike you as just a, as you say, plan is going to plan, just window dressing? Uh, it was quite serious and quite hopeful in the atomic age because um, they, we still had the Civil Defence Corps. They were disbanded in 1968, uh, partly because of money, you know, the way Britain was in the 60s. Partly because of money, but also partly because people were no doubt realising in government it's futile. But in the for late 40s, 50s, early 60s, we still had the Civil Defence Corps. They were training um, hard to rescue people from rubble and to, they had a welfare section, um, mainly ladies from the Women's Royal Voluntary Service, who of course were invaluable during the Blitz. They were known during the Blitz as the army Hitler forgot. 
you know, he could um, bomb the city, but then these women were going to arrive to rescue everyone and dish out soup and tea and uh, keep them safe and warm with blankets and with first aid. So they were still involved and they're often mocked because in the thermonuclear age, they still thought we're still going to do our duty, what we did in the Blitz, we're still going to turn up after the nuclear bomb, after the thermonuclear bomb with our blankets and our tea. And they were ridiculed, which is quite unfair because it was the world they knew and they wanted to carry on. But there was an article in The Guardian in the 80s which completely ridiculed them because at one of their conferences they'd said they were going to do their meals on wheel service so after the nuclear devastation. They were going to give out books to everyone who was in a welfare shelter, you know, to alleviate boredom. And they were also going to give out jigsaws. And everyone latched onto that, uh, jigsaws on wheels after Armageddon. And um, it, it, I hate to mock them because they, their heart was in the right place, but it was futile, a, a jigsaw and a cup of tea after nuclear war, you know. So in the atomic age, so you've got like six women coming to help and provide welfare. What, what about what, what attempt was made to actually protect the population in terms of deep shelters and then provide for civil, you know, ongoing government? Because I've been down some of the bunkers places like Dover mm. Castle, you know, pro sort of provide for resilience in government. Well, there were no shelters at all for the population, which in the early Cold War came as a bit of a shock to the population because they assumed, well, the government looked after us in the Second World War. We had shelters in the back garden. We had communal shelters. We had the underground, of course. There was none of that at all in the Cold War. Again, the official reason was money. Britain, after the war, of course, we were a bit done in. <laughs> we didn't have the money. And of course, um, if you're talking about an all-out nuclear war, you will need shelters for everyone in the population. It won't be a case of just the cities because you have fallout which can easily spread over the whole country. It goes wherever the wind takes it. So Britain did look at providing shelters for everyone all over the country and it was deemed impossible. And I, I do agree with them. It, it would have bankrupted Britain to have provided shelters. So we had nothing unless you were quite well off and had the money to build your own shelter. There were plenty of companies who popped up in the 80s in particular who would build you a shelter in your back garden. But firstly, you had to have a garden. Lots of people in Britain, of course, live in flats and don't have a garden. Uh, and you needed, say, £10,000 to build this shelter. Uh, some building societies were offering mortgages so you could build one of these shelters. But of course, you need, you need the luxury of a garden and you need the luxury of ten grand. A lot of people don't have that. So there were no shelters at all for the population unless you could build your own. The government, of course, as you said, they had plenty of bunkers all over the country, uh, regional seats of government. And the idea for that was after a nuclear war, we can assume London is gone. And so there'll be no Westminster, there'll be no Whitehall. So it will have to scatter across the country and break up into little chunks. And every Britain was cut up into civil defence regions. And each of these regions would have their own um, bunker filled with local councillors, local politicians, and with one cabinet minister striding in who was who would effectively be the Prime Minister of that little region until the lovely day in the future where we were all able to reunite again and have a, a normal Prime Minister back in Whitehall. So I've been to the big seat of government in, is it in the Cotswolds? or where, it's, it's, uh, it's west of London. And they have a whole bank of phone books there. And that I was told by the guy, couldn't, could be an urban myth, the idea was you just start phoning people at random in the phone book and, to get updates on whether people were still alive in that area. I don't know if that's <laughs> something you've heard. I hadn't heard of that. I had heard that... In the advance of nuclear war and then run up to it, if you have a run up to it and you don't just get a bolt from the blue four minute warning attack. But if, as the government hoped or envisaged, there would be a period of international tension, there might even be a conventional war which then goes nuclear. So in this run up period, one of the measures they would employ is to cut off all the phone lines so that you know worried relatives can't phone their, their friends and relatives and say, what's happening? Where are you going? Can I come with you? Can I, can I have your car? Etc. 
all the phone lines would be cut off except for of course VIP lines but if you were living in a normal residence and you picked up your phone and it was still working then that was quite a sinister thing because that meant the government had made sure your phone line was still working and the implication there was your residence was earmarked for some kind of government use so you might pick up your phone and go oh hey I've still got a dial tone but then you'd hear bang 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 on the door and it'd be the men coming round to, to take um, to, to take your residence off you. If you've always wanted to know more about some of the key events that shaped the medieval period and the modern world, then Gone Medieval from History Hit is the podcast for you. From this... The king ordered all the Danish men who were in England to be killed because he'd heard a rumour that they were trying to topple him. They seemed to have been beheaded one by one in some kind of systematic manner. To this... The stakes are so high. Even when she first appears on the scene, Joan says, I've got one year to do this. So she knows that this is going to come to a sticky end. With a whole lot of this in between. The knightly class is a group of people who have been chosen by God. Armour is a physical proof that that's literally true. With guests lined up at the drawbridge, it's time to let them in and begin the feast for your ears that is Gone Medieval. The podcast from History Hit. Together, my co-host Dr Kat Jarman and I, Matt Lewis. We've gone medieval and we're waiting for you to join us. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Was there a lot of sort of corruption? I mean, people must have, if you were in local government or in high up in the sort of, were there, were there sort of people making plans to get their families to come with them? I mean, that would be a, a natural human reaction. Yes, um, lots of politicians um, assumed they could take their families, but they, they were told, no, you simply cannot. And of course, back in the Cold War, it was mainly men who would, who would be doing this, it was mainly men who were in charge and would be expected to leave their wives and children at home. And most of, well, a lot of these men said, I'm simply not doing it. They said, even in advance of it all, in, in a period of perfect peace, when everyone was calm, they said, I, straight my name off the list. I am not leaving my, my wife and kids to go to the bunker. 
a lot of people, of course, even politicians, particularly local politicians in what were called nuclear-free zones. Uh, Sheffield and Manchester local councils declared themselves nuclear-free zones and said, we're having nothing to do with this. We're not building a shelter. They were obliged to by law, but they said, we're not doing it. We're not going along with this silly charade. So they said, we're not going to build a shelter. And even if you force us to build one, I'm not turning up on the day, not leaving my wife and kids, not going along with your, your silly charade that by ducking into this shelter, and allowing the population above ground to burn and die, we can keep Britain going. But of course, that was Whitehall's main concern. Once the hydrogen bomb came in, and it was obvious that millions and millions of British people would die, we, we stopped thinking we can save people in the, on the surface with blankets and jigsaws. The concern switched wholly to what they called continuity of government. The, the government's main concern must be making sure Britain continues, even if Britain is only a few guys in suits in a few bunkers, at least they can still come above ground eventually and wave a flag and say, Britain is still here, so haha to the Soviet Union, you didn't manage to wipe us out completely. There might just be 10 of us left, we are still Britain. I'll just pick up one thing, so you talked about a four minute warning and that's because presumably a submarine launched warhead in the North Sea, the time between that the, the strike being launched and it arriving above London is literally seconds almost. Yes, that's right. Um, the four-minute warning enters popular culture, of course, but um, it was accepted in government circles it would be less than four minutes. And as you say, if a sub launched from the North Sea, if they'd managed to get that far without being detected, then yes, we would have seconds of warning. There certainly wouldn't be the luxury of four minutes. And, and what about the health service? What, what, again, let's talk about the atomic age first. In terms of the health service... Were plans made for the sort of catastrophic increase in the number of people requiring beds? Um, yes, so there were plans to set up overflow hospitals. Now, of course, Britain, very, very densely packed, very crammed, so you don't have the luxury of lots of empty space where you could erect emergency hospitals or the money or the time to do it. So um, Aberdeen Council, for example, I found documents in the archives from them in the 60s where they sent some scouts, if you like, out to look at locations which could be used as emergency hospitals and they chose nightclubs and restaurants because of course they have floor space which can be cleared and just filled with stretchers and beds so um Aberdeen uh, listed the very poetic sounding Donald's ballroom and there was a uh, the Palais de Dance in Aberdeen and these uh, nightclubs would be cleared of all their paraphernalia all their tables etc and just filled if needed with stretchers and um, I just imagine how gruesome that would be. You've suffered awful blast injuries or you're dying of, fall of radiation sickness and you're dumped on the dance floor of Donald's ballroom and you're dying under the, under the glittering disco ball. <laughs> it just shows how ridiculous it is. But at the same time, even though it's futile, there was still some goodness at the core of it. They were trying to help people. They were trying, even though we, we mock it and ridicule it now. At least they didn't sit back and see every man for themselves. So okay, so those those are the preparations for an atomic strike. Mm -hmm. In the sixties, we we developed these vast, terrifyingly powerful weapons, like the Tsar bomber. You know, the, the biggest nuclear weapon ever detonated by the Russians. Yeah. Do, do they just give up then? So does the government? So as you say, the government then just focuses on getting a few cabinet ministers underground with a couple of union flags. Yes. <laughs> and, and does the NHS even bother at that point? Um, they were still planning again because they were obliged to plan. But the plans for the NHS became a lot darker. There was briefings, which I've seen from in the Royal College of Nursing, their archives, which was medical staff will be evacuated. So we can't evacuate the population. There's not enough time. There's no point because of fallout, etc. So scatter your nurses and doctors as far and wide as you can in the hope that at least pockets of them will survive. 
they will stay put in wherever they've been sent to, country houses or even um, cellars or basements somewhere, they will stay put until the radiation levels above ground fall, which of course might take weeks, depending on where you are, it might take weeks. And only once they've fallen to a safe level will the medics emerge and start trying to help people. So of course that means in the interim period, in those weeks, you're, you're on your own. If you're injured, if you're dying, you, there's no one to help you. Obviously the most basic thing when you're in trouble in Britain, you pick up the phone and dial 999, that's gone. There's no one at all to help you. Uh, you're reliant completely on your family or on any first aid, which you might have learned, which is again where the Women's Royal Voluntary Service come in handy because they had a scheme in the 60s called the One in Five scheme. And this was a plan to reach one in five British women to teach them about the horrors of the nuclear bomb, the thermonuclear bomb, and how they can protect the household and the family, either by you know fortifying it against blast and fallout with the old chestnut of propping doors against the wall and sandbags at the windows, and also urged them to learn first aid and taught them some basic techniques, it taught them firefighting techniques also, these nice, prim, sensible housewives. So they could, until the doctors and nurses emerged, they could at least try and take care of their families. And it was called the One in Five campaign because this might sound quite sexist, but it was the 60s. The idea is that women gossip. So if you can get this lecture or message across to just one in five women, those women will then meet all their friends over coffee and lunch and tell everyone else and it will gradually spread through the female population. What about the anarchy that you mentioned at the start? Because I went to a nuclear bunker in Essex once and there was some machine gun, there was some areas where machine guns could be mounted by the doors. And it struck me those weren't there to deal with a Soviet invasion. They were there probably to deal with desperate fellow British citizens. That's right. There was a huge fear of anarchy um, after the nuclear war. One of the really unsettling things I've learned is there were plans on how to punish people after the nuclear war. So if you had looters and anarchy and murder, etc., you can't punish people by putting them in jail because jail might actually be a luxury after a nuclear war because you'll be given a bed and you'll be surrounded by nice thick stone walls to keep out the fallout. So prison was no longer a punishment. Uh, there's no point fining people because money's useless now. So the government had to look at different ways to punish people to you know, keep a lid on any anarchy. And so execution, of course, was one of the things that was, um, that was mooted. Uh, execution squads, which would be done by soldiers, not, not, pol not policemen, done by the military. Another thing which was put forward as, as a suitable punishment and which sounds quite sinister is subject the criminal to public humiliation. And to me that means like the medieval stocks, mm. putting them back in the stocks or even maybe just throwing them to the crowd. You know, this guy looted the local store and now, now we're out of food. Do what you want with them. That's why I take that to mean. It means mob rule, I suppose. Subject someone to public humiliation. I mean, there can't be any more surprising documents in the nation's archives than, than stuff that was written sometimes in you know my lifetime yes but which is advocating you know sort of blue sky thinking around the most appall mm. unimaginable scenario it's extraordinary yes it's, it's still so close to us the nuclear threat of course is always going to be with us i don't think we can ever disarm i think that's a wonderful idea but i just don't think it's ever going to happen because of humans being what they are so it's always with us but during the cold war particularly in the 80s when it reached another spike there was a Panorama episode called If the Bomb Drops in 1981, presented by Jeremy Paxman. Now, of course, Jeremy Paxman, you associate him now with Newsnight and politics and things which are worthy, of course, but maybe sometimes a bit dull, a bit humdrum. And yet in 1981, there was a perfectly ordinary Panorama episode about what will we do when the bomb drops? And it did cover execution. It did cover the fact that um, 
politicians who'd be in these local bunkers, if they had to deal with rioters and looters, then yes, they could arrange for people to be shot in the head. And this was just going out on the BBC on a normal, say, Monday night, and it was just ordinary. It's just what people had to deal with. And again, that's in my lifetime. I was born in 1980. And it's just incredible to think that was all going on when I was oblivious to it all. You and I were bouncing on our yes. parents' laps. Thank you very much. Amazing. <laughs> that was so good. Actually, that was a tour de force. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.